This morning we're considering God's word in Mark chapter 11. So if you haven't already, would you take your Bibles and let's turn to Mark chapter 11. We'll be finishing chapter 11 and then moving into chapter 12 in this portion of scripture. Let's hear the word of God together. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Would you join with me in praying, asking that the Lord would help us, being our teacher, being the one who's given us the words of life. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning. We come to you asking for great help that we need, and we come in great faith, knowing that it is your delight to give the very help that we seek. We call you Father because the great mercy that you've extended to us in your Son and bringing us to yourself as adopted sons, that we have the great privilege to not only know you as king, to not only know you as prophet, to not only know you as priest, but through that office, to know you, our God, as Father. We ask and we pray that you would help us in our weakness, that you would be merciful to us in our hardness, and that you would be so compassionate that you would help us to see the goodness of Christ, and that you would help us to see the goodness of his authority. Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to bear the fruit that, Lord, only you can cause it to bring forth in our lives. Lord, we long to be the sort of people, the sort of church 
that honors you because of the good fruit that you're bringing. And we are confident that you are, you are capable of doing that. That your word and your spirit calls your church, builds your church, purifies and strengthens, edifies your church. And so, Lord, do what you've promised to do this morning. By the power of your spirit, to the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. As we're making our way through Mark's gospel, you'll remember that for some time now, there's been a building tension that's happening in the storyline as Mark is retelling it. This building tension that is a hostility against Jesus, directed at Jesus, and it has now come to the place that the pot is boiling over. But in spite of these reasons, even as the tension is rising, Jesus does not hide from it. He does not seek to deflate it. He actually walks right towards it. Mark shows us that this Jesus not only walks into Jerusalem fully aware that he will be betrayed and that he will be killed, this Jesus is also fully aware of the blindness and the hypocrisy of religious Israel. He is under no illusion as to what is actually happening in this city. In the first half of chapter 11, it really tells of this in Jesus' three very symbolic acts. Remember back in verse, uh, the verse, first verses of chapter 11 that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden amid shouts of Hosanna, meaning save now, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And so as Jesus walks into Jerusalem, he is doing so under these cries of deliverance for a rescuer and a Messiah, and he welcomes those cries. In a sense, the stage is set, behold your king. He comes to you, humble, riding upon a donkey. Second, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and Mark tells us that he curses this fig tree. A curious incident, because it's full of leaves, But upon closer inspection, it's void of any fruit. And the fig tree, as we saw, is yet another symbol of Israel, which so often resembled this tree. Like the tree, it advertised great health. And yet, upon closer inspection, it was actually barren and devoid of any real fruit. So here we see Jesus stand as the great prophet who rebukes the people for their hypocrisy and their fruitlessness. But then... Thirdly, Jesus arrives at the temple. He drives out the merchants, the money changers, and he rebukes the people for turning his house, which should have been a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And he rebukes them for their insurrection against God and his purposes for this temple. And in doing so, Jesus acts as the king and the high priest, exercising authority over the temple. Now, taking all of this into consideration, you begin to understand why the chief priests come to Jesus and they are provoked to ask, essentially, who do you think you are? It's a valid question, considering what Jesus has just done and what he has just said. Their question is a legitimate question that every single one of us should ask. Does Jesus have the right to be worshipped as Messiah, to dictate as to how God should be worshipped, and to rebuke others for their disobedience? Or more specifically, 
Does Jesus have the right to speak into your life, into my life, and dictate how things ought to be? What we're exposed to here in Mark 11 is that issue of authority and the very issue of Jesus' right to declare how things ought to be. So let's consider this portion of Scripture as it unfolds, as we get really at the, the heart of the issue here. We're given an illustration by way of parable, and then the implication and what Christ draws the attention to. The issue is really there in the end of chapter 11, verses 27 all the way to the end through 33. As we read through what Mark records in Mark 11, it's really important that we remember the emphasis is not simply or not only on what Jesus does. The emphasis is on why he does it and who he declares himself to be in doing it. The question, verses 27 through 28, is a question of authority. Now, authority, it's an important theme in the Gospels, specifically in Mark. Maybe you noticed just in the course of five verses, this word authority shows up four times. That should be a clue that this is a really big issue as to what's going on. But it's not just here in Mark chapter 11. Authority has kind of been this theme that has been in the background illuminating so much of what Mark is putting forth as he declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Back in Mark chapter 1, the first chapter, verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. A few verses later, verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. It unfolds further in chapter 2, verse 9, where Jesus says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go to your house. From the very onset in Mark's retelling of this good news, he wants us to see that we're going to have to deal with this issue of authority if we want to understand the Jesus of the Bible. His authority in teaching, his authority over demonic spirits, his authority over sin. And if we're going to understand and worship Jesus as the Bible declares him to be, we must come to grips and think through this issue of authority. Who is Jesus anyway? And does he have the authority to direct my life? Does he have the authority to tell me the way things must be? This is essentially the question of the chief priests. What gives you the right to flip tables to drive out merchants, to receive praise, and to rebuke us. How does Jesus respond? Well, in verses 29 through 33, we're given the wisdom of Christ's response. The Pharisees, they understand something. That the only being who possesses inherent authority 
given, not given by any man, not delegated by any institution. The only being who holds inherent authority by the nature of who they are is God. So, if Jesus responds to this question of authority by saying, I'm my own authority, then he can be more easily dismissed as delusional or as a fool. But if he says, my authority comes from God, then they can discredit him with blasphemy. So in a very clever way, Jesus turns the tables on them and answers their question with a question. And he says, what do you think about John? John the baptizer. Was his baptism, and by that he means his message, his overall ministry, was his baptism from heaven, of God, or from man? Now, there's a very important reason that Jesus aligns himself with John the Baptist here. It's the same reason that Mark, if you remember, in chapter 1, opens his gospel by saying, I'm going to tell you the beginning of the good news, and you need to begin by understanding that God promised in Malachi he would send a forerunner, one who would prepare the way. His name was John. John appeared, and then here's Jesus. So there's a very good reason that Jesus attaches himself to the ministry of John, because John established, and really announced the coming of this Messiah. And so the pickle that these religious leaders are in is this. If they affirm that John was from God, then why didn't they affirm John's message? And John's message was very explicit, especially when we remember John's account in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Who are you? I'm the voice. And what are you saying? Behold the Lamb. The ministry of John. So you're one of the chief priests. And you're tasked with summarizing the ministry of John. Option one. Okay, John's message was of God. John testified about honoring Jesus as the Lamb of God. Why aren't we honoring Jesus? Okay, boys, is there another option? Yes, option two. We can say that John is just from man, really not from God, and therefore we shouldn't listen to him. But if we say that, we have a riot on our hands because most of the people understand John to be sent from God and the people consider him to be a true prophet. What do we do? You see, Jesus is quite brilliant here in asking this question not just to throw them a curveball, but to force them to deal with the real issue of their question. By what authority? Well, I'm going to make it pretty obvious, but I'm going to make you say it. And what do they say? We don't know. John the Baptist was the third rail for this religious leadership, and they refused to touch it because if they did, they knew they were done for. So they just say, we don't know. 
There's some relevance not only for these men to consider, but there's relevance for all. For everyone who's hearing these words this morning, there's relevance. The question, who is Jesus, what's the source of his authority, is a question for believers and unbelievers alike. And one of the things that we must see is that our response to Jesus' authority is a spiritual diagnostic of our lives. How you respond to the authority of Jesus reveals something about the condition of your heart, of your soul, of who you are. Just as you would take your car into a mechanic, there are certain diagnostic tests that can reveal what's actually happening under the hood. The Bible gives to us certain diagnostic tests that can reveal what's happening within our hearts. Let's put it this way. Your response to Jesus' authority is an indicator of where your own spiritual health and vitality is at. Do I bristle? Do I pull back at the idea of Jesus' words and works having authority over my life? Or do I honor him? Do I seek to submit to him? Do I long to actually glorify and announce what he has said and what he has done? Now keep in mind the question that the religious leaders are asking here is one that's already been plainly answered. Jesus, by his own words and by his own works, made it abundantly clear that he possesses authority given by the Father because he is the eternal I am sent to ransom God's people. That's been becoming more and more evident as the Gospel of Mark unfolds. So the reason that they're asking this question is not because Jesus hadn't yet made a clear testimony of who he is. It's because their hearts are hard. They do not see it. They refuse to see it. And it's vital for us to understand this point. Because one's rejection of our Lord Jesus is not primarily a sign of lack of information. It's a sign of rebellion against God. Ultimately, our refusal to honor Christ as he is is not one of information. It's not an information problem, but it's a moral problem. We choose not to. We will not to see him as this. Because the scriptures ultimately teach that our resistance to him or our resistance to submitting to him is really a condition of the heart. In our natural state, we are opposed to God. We're actually enemies of God. And one of the grievous effects of sinful corruption is that we are naturally resistant to God and to his word. That's wired into who we are as fallen image bearers of God. Do you remember that portion in John chapter 3? You probably know verse 16. But the context of 16 is, is so important. Because it goes on in verse 18 to say, Whoever believes in him, the Son, is not condemned. Good news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things 
hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And even in our renewed and born-again state, there is still this remaining sinful nature that still prompts us to push back against Jesus as the authority, as the light, as the revealed word of God. Specifically, we need to be mindful and be absolutely clear by what we mean of the authority of Jesus. It would be very easy to just move over this and not stop to define some terms. When we talk about the authority of Jesus, what are we talking about? Because that could become very subjective. It can become very flexible as to what we think it ought to mean. Specifically, is this idea of his authority really just my idea of who I think Jesus is? Or is it my idea of, I think Jesus was actually like this. Or is my understanding of who Christ is framed up and exposed by the scriptures? What we're saying is that the revealed authority of Christ is made visible in the word of God. We know the authority of Jesus as we know the word of God. Listen to what Second London Confession does as it summarizes the teaching of scripture in chapter 1. The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. What it's getting at is that the Scriptures are our authority. Not because they're some detached document from this God, but because they are the word of God. The inscripturated revelation of who God is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word has spoken and we hold the word of God. The authority of Jesus is seen in our response to the authority of God's word. Think about it, friends. On what authority would we go into the world preaching that all men must repent and believe and that Jesus Christ is the only sufficient mediator between God and men. What gives you the right to say that? Well, it's only by the authority of God's word. What authority do we go to another brother, another sister, and plead with them to walk in the light, to forsake sin, to repent. Who are you to say such things? On what authority would you ever come to another person and say that is sin? Well, not on your own authority. You come on the authority of God's word. You come under the authority to that brother and sister and saying, I'm not telling you anything you don't know because we're both under the authority of God's word. And so I'm bringing the word of Christ to you. It's on his authority that I'm pleading that I'm pointing you to this. And what authority do we declare that sins are forgiven and we assure one another of pardon? Who in their right mind could say, brother, I assure you, your sins are forgiven. On what authority could you say that? Well, only by the authority of God's word that reminds us to all who are united in Christ 
that God is faithful and just to forgive sins. We come on the authority of God's word. What I'm getting at is how easily and how tempting it would be to turn the authority of Jesus or this idea of the authority of Jesus or this idea that we boast in the authority of Jesus to some very subjective and flimsy idea that we conveniently align with our own preferences. And we just simply pull this vague idea of the authority of Jesus down into our lives and say, well, it's because Jesus, and that's why I live the way that I live. Friend, what has Jesus said? What does his word reveal? The authority of Christ is known to be present in our lives insofar as the word of Christ is ordering our lives. Jesus continues to make his authority known over us, not through subjective interpretations, but through the objective revelation of his word to us. So friends, what that means is we come alongside one another speaking words of correction. We speak words of admonishment, encouragement, assurance, all under the authority of God's word. A Christian relates to another Christian under the authority of God's word. A Christian goes out into the workplace, into the world, and speaks of Christ under the authority of God's word. If this is true, that means one of the most helpful things, one of the greatest things we can do for our own souls and that we can do for others is to recognize that good authority is a good gift. One of the best things you can do for your own soul and for those under your influence is to emphasize and to remind and to clarify that good authority is a good gift. And this is of such importance because you know, as you look around, that we live in a day and an age where authority has become synonymous with oppression and evil. When you hear of authority, you're supposed to automatically hear oppression. And oppression is evil, obviously. And the assumption then in that sort of worldview is that the problem is with the structures of authority and where authority exists, oppression and evil will flourish. Therefore, banish any sense of authority. Authority is the problem. Now, Christian, that sort of logic should set off all sorts of alarms in your mind. Because at its very foundation, that sort of logic lies about God. It promotes the sort of false teaching and distortion that says God is oppressive and evil simply because God is an authority. But a thoughtful Christian and a loving person is going to push back on this assumption and say, no, authority is not the problem. It's the one who holds the authority. Good authority is a good design, and it actually promotes more goodness. If you want to be a faithful parent, if you seek to be a good parent, one of your primary jobs is to help your children see that God's authority over us is good, that it's right, 
And therefore, we seek to wield all our authority as parents in such a way that it serves to help them see the goodness of God's authority. That is one of the most important and primary jobs you have as a parent, especially with young children. The one lesson that is on repeat is that God is the authority and His authority is good. I am in your life to help you see God's authority and the goodness of His authority. So much flows down from that reality and so much is simplified by highlighting that reality. Not only for being a parent or a grandparent, but if you want to be a good friend, if you want to be a faithful and helpful church member, then come alongside one another and remember that God's authority over us is good and it's right. Our individual lives and our collected whole as a church will flourish best when we recognize and honor the rightful authority that Christ has over us and we rest in that and say it is good. Good authority is a good design and it promotes goodness for God's creation. But Jesus doesn't leave them there with this conversation. It goes into chapter 12 where he gives an illustration. He begins to tell them a parable. He tells a parable about a man who owns a vineyard and prepared it and he dug out the place for it, a pit for the wine press, built a tower, and as would be common in that day, leased it to tenants for them to take care of that to ensure that the vineyard does what the vineyard's supposed to do. It's not just supposed to look nice, place to visit, it's supposed to produce fruit. The tenants are responsible, they're stewards, to ensure that the designer and the owner and the authoritarian over this vineyard, that it does what it's supposed to do. This parable really is of utmost importance as we seek to understand it in light of redemptive history and our part within it. As you read it, you probably already picked up on the implications. And in Mark's, I love the way he writes there in verse 12, they perceived that he told the parable against them. They weren't completely in the dark. As they heard this parable, they kind of... tilted their heads and said, I think he's talking about us. And they were absolutely right. The image of the vineyard is the chief image God uses to describe his relationship with his people. In his vineyard, he expects it to bear fruit for his glory for the nations. That's Isaiah 5. It's his vineyard to bear fruit for his glory is a testimony to the nations. But the tenants in this particular vineyard, vineyard, they're wicked. They're rebellious. They're treasonous. And so you begin to see that the parable is clearly allegorical in its application. The vineyard owner is God. The tenants represent God's people, the nation of Israel. The servants represent the various prophets that God has sent. The testimony of Israel that it's rebelled against God, rejected its prophets, and will very shortly, in a matter of days, deliver up the son to be killed and thrown outside of the city. What happens in this parable foretells what will happen in a matter of days. The tenants will take the heir, they'll take him outside of the city, and they'll kill him. 
And by doing so, the tenants are declaring our lives, our worship, our temple. And so in making application, Jesus asks the obvious question, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? He answers there in verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. We know in hearing that this is the logical answer. It's the only answer that would make sense that judgment is coming. And we resonate on some level knowing that judgment's righteous. That's fair. If that was my vineyard, my investment, buy the land, clear it, plant the vineyard, a tower, a wine press, put people in charge, I send my servants to come get the fruit, you beat them, you mock them, you bash them on the head, I send my son, you kill my son, we, we know Judgment is the only righteous response. The parable ultimately tells of a rejection of authority and a failure to give honor to whom honor is due. Remember, all of this, we said it helps us understand redemptive history, all of this goes back to a promise that God made in a garden that he has been faithful to remind his people over year after year that he will bring it about. It goes back to a promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a son who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Deception and the rebellion of sin had brought this horrible curse upon the earth, but God promises, I'll deal with the curse. And then God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that from their family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that they would be God's chosen people, and from their offspring would come one who would ransom God's people. God promised to them that he would provide a land for them in which they would dwell. And in this land, he would establish a temple. And this temple would contain all of the types, all of the shadows, all of the pictures of this great promise of the gospel. It would be through the sacrifice of the innocent in the place of the guilty that God's people could come and dwell with him. Israel, then, exists, essentially, is the scaffolding to uphold the unfolding purposes of God's redemptive plan to save a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the temple proclaims. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the law requires. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the priesthood points to. God's vineyard exists for God's purposes to bring about the fruits of redemption that he intends. And yet, the tenants of this vineyard are so completely blind that they have missed the point. So much so that they've rejected the vineyard owner and the vineyard owner's son And killed him. Now, according to Jesus, this privileged role of Israel was given to caring for God's vineyard is now being taken away and given to others. Israel was tasked to be the tenant of God's vineyard, but they're no longer receptive, they're not obedient to God's revelation, and as a result, God gives this stewardship over to other vine growers in this parable. So what? What are we supposed to do with this? 
Well, Jesus presses further when he asks, have you not read? What I'm telling you is actually nothing new. What I'm telling you has actually been promised in the scriptures. The implications of this are in verses 10 through 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus points his hearers to Psalm 118 in order to make application of the parable that he just told. Verses 10 through 11 essentially are the therefore of the parable that he told. He tells the parable and then says, all right, what do we do with this? In light of that, you need to know this. And so this is the deciding issue, after all, of what we do with Jesus. And the image that Christ uses to teach, he pulls from Psalm 118. As builders set out to establish a house or a building, the cornerstone was the principal stone that would be used to ensure the stability and the uniformity of the entire house. And you can imagine the stonemason down at the quarry looking for that ideal stone that would be set in place as the cornerstone. Looking for that ideal stone that could be used to be the stone that would set the stability and the uniformity on which the whole house would be built upon. And this is the great irony, and this is the stinging rebuke of all that Jesus is getting at. The very ones who are tasked with the responsibility to steward God's temple and to steward the vineyard are the very same ones who reject the son of the the vineyard, just like the builders rejected the stone that was actually the cornerstone. Bottom line, to kill the son of the vineyard owner, to toss the most important stone over your shoulder, it's a failure of purpose. You've failed to do what you've been given to do. But in God's providence, in God's wisdom, and the unfolding mystery of redemption, the stone that the builders rejected, it's actually the cornerstone. This psalm explains that the one who would be rejected, the one who would be murdered, would actually be vindicated. That he would be the one to whom the Father would set all honor upon. This stone, abandoned, cast aside, thrown to the rubble heap, is actually picked up by God himself and placed in the foundation as the centerpiece of his plan for all eternity. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. This Jesus, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious in his sight. And it's upon this Jesus that God is actually building his spiritual house, a house that will be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Meaning, God intends the lives of his people to bring him glory as they are built upon and united to his son. And the only way that this is going to work is if we see Jesus as he is the precious cornerstone of God's building. But in our fallen condition, every single one of us, we are convinced that building upon anything other than Jesus and his authoritative word will be better for us. 
in our natural state, you and I are convinced that anything would be better to build upon than this Jesus and the authority of his word. Friend, the only way that you will find comfort in your suffering, the only way that you will find endurance, the only way that you will find real, eternal purpose for your life, assurity in the midst of doubt, forgiveness in the midst of your sin, is if you see Jesus as he is, the cornerstone and the sure foundation that your life is meant to rest upon. That is the only way that our lives actually have substance and actually make sense. It's when we build upon the foundation that God has said, this is the way, walk in it. This is good. This is my plan for you, to be built upon my son. And so we return then to our original question. Does Jesus have the authority to declare things to be the way they ought to be? Does he have the authority to speak into your life? Does he have the authority to speak into my life? To dictate how things are to be? The declaration of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who's come in the flesh. He's anointed as the Messiah of God's people, sent to reveal the Father and redeem God's people. Not only does he have the highest authority, this authority is wielded to ensure that his people experience the highest possible good they could ever have imagined. He works his authority to maximize goodness for all of his plan. When we see his authority, we experience his goodness. The two are not opposites. They're actually woven together. Taste and see, the psalmist says, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Friend, that is an invitation and an announcement to you this morning. Whether you profess Christ or not, taste and see that he is good. And there is a blessing in being found as him being your refuge. So, what we're getting at is quite obvious, but it must be said. Do we see Jesus as the one to whom we build our lives upon, seeking to give honor to? Or is he the one that we've cast aside? Jesus declares that there is a high price for rejecting him. But he also promises this wonderful promise that when our lives are built upon him, he will establish a house that will not be shaken, a people that will only know his goodness and that will know his mercy forever. Jesus promises that according to the plan of the triune God, he will create a new people, a new nation, without borders that is unified by this King Jesus, and they will bear the fruit that God seeks. The announcement of the gospel given to us in this declaration is to consider Jesus, to consider him as the faithful son who honors the Father, who carries out the will of the Father by living the sinless life, dying the sacrificial death to ransom a people for God. We are to consider this Jesus who willingly comes into the Father's vineyard to be rejected, to be killed, but it is through this rejection and it is through this death that the Father ransoms rebellious sinners. This is the grace of God in Christ. 
J.C. Ryle summarized it this way. Let it be a settled principle in our Christianity that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely willing to receive humble sinners. It matters nothing what a man has been in times past. Does he repent and come to Christ? Then old things are passed away and all things are become new. It matters nothing of how high and self-confident a man's profession of religion may be. Does he really give up his sins? If not, his profession is abominable in God's sight, and he himself is still under the curse. Let us take courage ourselves if we've been great sinners up until now. Only let us repent and believe in Christ, and there is hope. Let us encourage others to repent. Let us hold the door open wide to the very chief of sinners, and never will that word fail if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If Jesus has the authority, he says he has. Friend, that is the best news you could hear. Because he then has the authority to say whosoever. He then has the authority to say your sins are forgiven. He then has the authority to say my kingdom will not end. It's under his authority that the church finds great comfort. And it's under his authority that we find great confidence to live as his people. Father, we ask and we pray that you would help us because we confess we struggle so often with this idea of your authority. Father, we see in our own lives how frequently and how blatantly we struggle with this very idea of considering your authority over us, your word over us. So Lord, we ask and we pray that you would help us by the ministry of your word and spirit to see the absolute goodness of your authority and the wonderful flourishing that happens for your people as we align ourselves under you. Lord, would you convince us of this? Would you subdue us of all rebellion? Would you draw us to yourself that we might enjoy and experience what you have planned for your people? The very mercy that you delight to extend even this morning. We pray and we ask, Lord, that you would accomplish this in our hearts, that you would continue to work in us all of the good fruit, Lord, that you have designed, the very fruit that you have ordained that we would walk in and that would be born forth from our homes, our families, and our church. Lord, we long for the sort of fruit that remains, the sort of fruit that brings you glory, that says only God could do this. Only God in his great wisdom would ever think of such a plan to forgive someone like us. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would make that more clear and that you would cause that to be the very thing that grows us in our awe and our wonder of you. Amen.